how remaining in Jesus and his words leads to flourishing, thriving. How remaining in Jesus and his words leads to flourishing, thriving, and fruitfulness. In my first talk, I took us through several ways through which I think the vine dresser's tending of us helps us to overcome the apparent obstacles that we encounter in our vineyards. I felt that this quote by Ruth Valerio bridges some of the things in that talk with what I want to say in this one. I used to think that being a hero of the faith meant being a superhero. Now I realise that it often means something far more ordinary. Keeping hold of Jesus and letting him keep hold of us. Whatever unexpected and difficult path we find ourselves on. What does keeping hold of Jesus look like in reality? The second question that I want to ask you at the start of this talk is, what does flourishing, thriving and fruitfulness look like to you? I taught in Key Stage 2 primary classrooms for 29 years, a wonderful 21 of them being in Eastern in Bristol's inner city. And for much of that time, I needed to write IEPs, individual educational plans, for children in my class who needed more support or sometimes stretching. We used the acronym SMART for all of the targets that we wrote for our pupils, which meant that they always had to be specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-bound. This meant that after a predetermined period of time, they could be reviewed, assessed, and adjusted where necessary. Just take a moment to think what for you could be smart targets that you might write down for yourself to measure over the coming months to what extent you have flourished, thrived and been fruitful over that time. I guarantee that the smart targets that you write down will be very different from those of the person sat next to you. Those of you who are making notes might like to jot down in the margin a reminder to think about how you might measure how savouring, musing on and remaining in Jesus' words, which I'm going to be de detailing in the next section, has led to increased flourishing, thriving and fruitfulness in your life. In God's textbook on life, in John 15 verse 16, Jesus says, I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And in John 15, verse 7 and 8 in the message, Jesus exhorts us to let his words make themselves at home in us for his Father's glory, that we might bear much fruit. How do we welcome Jesus' words and help them to make themselves at home in us? In the conference flyers, the first aim of this women's Bible study conference is studying the teachings and principles of the Bible while looking for the word to reveal himself to us. This is what I'm talking about in the second talk. The NIV reads as the words of Jesus remaining in us. I see this word as meaning staying with us, staying with us through thick and thin, 
through the good times as well as through the bad. When things stay with us, we carry them with us into all of our situations. It's not that we have the things of Jesus in our first aid kits, in our medical cupboards, ready for us to rummage through occasionally when we need a plaster, or in the toolkits in the boots of our car, ready for when we might get a flat tire. No, I think that Jesus is saying that he wants his words to remain in us, to be carried by us, to stay with us, accompanying us into all of our situations. We've got them ready that way. And gradually, they become the air that we breathe. My mum is the most amazing example of this to me. In his inspirational and empowering book, Invest Your Disappointments, Paul Mallard writes this advice. God calls us to trust him in the dark based on what we have learned in the light. Amen to that. Jesus and his life-giving, life-changing words are the lights that we carry into our darkest, bleakest, most bitterest of spaces. In When Faith Gets Shaken, Patrick Regan tells such a powerful story of when he was struggling a great deal physically. He was living with constant pain in his leg and his back, coupled with symptoms of IBS and eczema brought on by stress that meant he wasn't sleeping properly. He details how one day, in a particularly bleak moment, his, his wife Diane stepped out of the room to have a minute to herself and to vent to God about the seemingly impossible situation. As she prayed, she saw a picture of a tunnel and immediately thought of the phrase, the light at the end of the tunnel. But in her vision, she couldn't see any light in the distance. The tunnel seemed too long. And as she looked again, she saw that the light was around her at the start of the tunnel, not at the end. And that image connected so powerfully with me as my mind went back to the conversation I'd had with my friend and what she'd said when I asked her what brought her out of her long, dark tunnel. I realised in that instant that the crocheted hug of love, the simple pair of hands in an envelope, was light in her tunnel. Not someone calling encouragement to her from the end of it, in the amazing light that they were stood in and enjoying. It was the light brought to her that spurred her on to keep on putting one foot in front of the other until she emerged relieved out of the other end. What a revelation. We are called to take that same light into people's tunnels into their prisons, into their cages, into their leisure activities, into their schools, into their streets, into their hospitals. In Matthew 5, verse 13, Jesus said these incredible words to his disciples, and he says the same words to us today. You are the light of the world. You, that's us ladies, that's you and that's me. 
when we do what Jesus exhorts us to do in John 15 verse 7 and let his eternal for all time words make themselves at home in us, when we let them remain in us, stay with us, be carried by us, we carry candles, headlamps, flaming torches, flashlights, lit orbs, lanterns into people's tunnels and dark spaces. And the amazing thing is that light always puts out darkness, but darkness can never, ever extinguish light. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2, Paul writes these phenomenal words of such purport to the church in Corinth, which I again think are as irrelevant for us today. You show that you are a letter from Christ. Wow, could that be true? Could we really be a letter from Christ to this world? This is what it goes on to say. You show that you are a letter from Christ, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. When we let Jesus's words remain and abide in us, could they really become carved into our hearts so that we are what Jesus wants to say to the world, so that we are his letter his jottings, his correspondence with a world that so needs to hear what he's got to say to it. I think it's possible for us to be that. The final point that I want to make here is a reminder that each one of us is surrounded by competing voices clamouring for our attention in our different situations. Sometimes the loudest voice speaking inside our head is our own some of those voices will be helpful ones, ones that have our best interests at heart. Others will be unhelpful, detrimental ones that will do us no favours. Let us time and time again seek to tune into Jesus' wavelength. Let us look to drown out the loud, distracting voices. Let it be the words of Jesus, words written not on tablets of stone, but on our very hearts that speak the loudest and the clearest to us in all that we do. In this next section, I want to talk about how if we carry Jesus's words with us, then they are there, ready to be used, invested, shared in our places. In Fruitfulness on the Frontline, Mark Green makes clear that we all have a frontline, and although our frontlines are usually different from each other's, we can all be fruitful on them. In his book, he writes, what if for now at least the people we are with day by day on our front line, down our street, in our fitness class, in our workplace are the ones God wants us to love and serve. And he goes on to say, God the Father is interested in you and he is interested in how you use the talents, the freedoms, the opportunities, the power, the resources that he has entrusted to you. There could be people right here who feel that their place isn't primed, isn't ready, isn't conducive for flourishing and fruitfulness. You might want to say to me, but Emma, you haven't seen my place where I'm doing battle. 
the place that I never in a million years expected to find myself. I remember the opening scene of a Planet Earth episode coming up on the TV and David Attenborough's voice saying this as the opening line. There isn't a desert in the world that doesn't have life in it. Where your current place is concerned, is our God able to bring forth fruit in it? I want to say to you today with such certainty, with such conviction, yes, he is. Yes, he is. About four years ago on a ladies weekend in Bridgewater, I brought a plaque that hangs in pride of place in my kitchen and I couldn't tell you the amount of times that I've jumped up from the home group evening, my Beth Moore groups or talking with a friend to show it in reference to the situation that sometimes find, someone finds themselves in. May it encourage you and empower someone seeing it this weekend. Grow where you are planted. I think that it's, a really, it's really helpful at this point to come back to Jesus' analogy of our life being like a vineyard. In John 15 verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. In Isaiah 5, we see how the vine dresser carefully chooses and prepares a place before he plants his vineyard. In verse 1 and 2 it reads, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. Could it be that God prepared the ground of your place before you were intentionally planted in it? Could it be that our gardener God dug it over and cleared it of stones before he settled you there? Could it be that our vine dresser is supremely confident that you can be fruitful right there? Do you believe that God can even reach into your situation, your places, your front lines? It reads in Isaiah 59 verse 1, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save nor his ear too dull to hear. And in 2 Timothy 2 verse 9 it reads, but God's word is not chained. Amen to that. God's word can reach anywhere. It can reach places that other things can't. How did and does Almighty God, my, God's almighty word come to us? In John 1 verse 1 it reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14 it reads, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is our Jesus. This is our Lord who looks to remain in us, who looks to make his home in our hearts and who looks to write his letter to the world there in that place. Don't ever think that God can't cultivate and bring fruit out of your place. Even if your place consists of hard and difficult ground at the moment. In Chasing Vines, Beth Moore talks a lot about the way that vineyards are often established on hills. 
and so rightly says about life, without valleys, there are no hills. The most powerful and moving comments that I have ever read about how someone reconciled with the pain of their place was in Rachel Wright's raw and honest book, The Skies I'm Under, where she details how the night before her due date, she couldn't feel her baby kicking, how he was delivered the next day by emergency caesarean, resuscitated and put into the intensive care baby unit. Weeks later, an MRI scan showed where part of his brain had shrunk and how he had been left with a severe disability. Rachel was overwhelmed by thoughts of all the things that her boy wouldn't do, which weren't in the category of go to university, get married, but rather see, sit, communicate, eat, walk. At 10 months old, Sam began suffering life-threatening seizures, and shortly after his first birthday, he was registered blind. Yet this is what his mum finds herself able to write about the place that she finds herself in, in what must be to me amongst the bravest statements that I have ever come across. The most challenging paths lead to the most beautiful scenery. Often you simply can't get there any other way. What I have come to believe is that goodness can be found in every situation. That doesn't make every situation good, nor am I belittling the pain and sorrow of hard experiences. What I mean is, in the dark places, light has the biggest impact. When the cloak of darkness feels impenetrable, God is still there. Some of his greatest work is found in the darkness. I can't really add anything to that courageous statement, apart from to say there is someone who has truly allowed the words of Jesus to find a home in her big heart. So how significant is the soil where we're planted? In Chasing Vines, Beth Moore writes about how the rhizosphere, the cylinder of soil surrounding each plant root, is the most vital underground element for any plant. And how the interface where the root touches the soil is where the real life takes place. Is that true of us, do you think? That it's the influences around our roots that impact our living the most. What is the cylinder of soil surrounding your roots composed of? And I ask again, like I did just now, who are the voices that surround you in your life and which of them speak loudest? Another vital element of our place is how we're rooted when we allow the words of Jesus to remain in us, to take root in our hearts of flesh where letters are written, we become like the trees in Psalm 1 and Jeremiah 17 in what are among my favourite verses in the Bible. Trees planted by water who send out their roots by those streams. Trees that have no worries in a year of drought or fears when the heat comes. Trees whose leaves are always green 
and that never fail to yield their fruit in season. Beth Moore so rightly wisely writes, there's no bearing fruit upward without first taking root downward. There are no shortcuts, no special dispensations, no exceptions for exceptional people, no special entitlements. Oh, it may seem so for a while, but a shallowly rooted plant won't stand the test of time. The reason my yucca plant in the photo I showed earlier died was because its roots shriveled due to the fact that they couldn't find water. Be careful with your roots and may they always seek out the nearby stream. Something that I think closely aligns with this idea of roots and remaining in Jesus is thinking about what we build our lives on and what we have as our foundations. In Matthew 7, Jesus doesn't mince his words when he describes the wise and the foolish builders. The wise one hears Jesus' words and puts them into action. The foolish one hears the same words but decides not to act on them or put them into practice. He is unable to withstand the storms when they hit. Jesus couldn't have been any clearer. When you look at photos of vineyards, there's something else that you see apart from acre upon acre of green leafed vines holding up bunches of grapes. And that is the wood of the trellis that the vines are being trailed along. It is well known that vines grow according to the way in which they are trained. Their branches are encouraged to flourish by being secured to the trellis and by leaning against it for support. I was reminded of this a few weeks ago when my husband and I were driving over some rugged exposed country roads in North Devon and I saw what some of the scrubby trees looked like. The winds had been so strong and so ferocious that those trees had grown in the direction that they'd blown. They were frozen in time with no hope of straightening out. I know when we next drive over those roads in a few months' time, those trees will look exactly the same. How much have you been defined by the winds that have blasted across your life? How much have you been shaped by your storms. Let us lean our vine branches against the trellis of the scriptures. Let our support and our stay be the words of our Jesus, remembering that the cross of Christ is and will always be our stake in the ground. In this next section, I want to talk about where fruitfulness is concerned. Remaining in the words of Jesus doesn't mean in my mind. For me, it doesn't mean staying in one's comfort zone, staying with the familiar status quo, staying in our cages where, unnoticed by us, the door has stood open for longer than we could ever have imagined. I think that it involves going, risking, trying, trusting, the reason why the fruitful vine planted by a stream of Genesis 49 reached people over their walls that it managed to scale was because it didn't stand still. Our belief, I believe that our remaining in Jesus and his words of life 
are being like the wise man who put those words into practice and weathered the storms is all about going, about living it, about not burying our talents in the ground like the man in Jesus's parable of Matthew 25 who wanted to play it safe, keep close what he had and who he was. In Jen Baker's devotional journal, Untangled, under the heading Freedom from Stagnation, she writes, most of us know people who have become in some area comfortable in their stalemate. They remain stuck, either ignorant of a different outcome or frozen in place, fearing what change might mean. Fear has the ability to keep us in a position we should have left long ago. Are you sometimes scared to go, to risk, to try it, to live it in a place away from your comfort zones, away from your familiar, in a place where you're unsure of the outcomes or what your vine might produce? The awesome thing is that we never go alone. God goes with us, as we heard this morning, always. From me being four years old and onwards, we attended my nan's church in Hembury, Bristol, where my dad began his ministry. In fact, you can see the name of the church if you look closely. Here in this photo of my mum and dad's wedding day, 55 years ago. As a child, there was something that made me feel so at home there as I toddled up those steps eons ago. It's that I could see my name there at the start of it, Emmanuel Chapel. No doubt over the coming Christmas weeks, we will hear the familiar verse that I'm about to share many times over, but maybe today, just take a moment to think on it afresh. In the New English translation in Matthew 1 verse 23, it reads, Look, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Jesus Almighty God sends himself to be with us. And in John 14 in the Amplified Bible Classic Edition, a few verses before the vine and branches that we're thinking about this weekend, Jesus says to his disciples in preparation for his imminent death, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter, counsellor, helper, intercessor, advocate, strengthener, standby, then he may remain with you forever. In the King James Version, the same verse reads as, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. You see, remaining and abiding work both ways. And as we go to flourish, to thrive and be fruitful on our brave front lines in our own particular places, we never go alone. We are always accompanied, supported, consoled, cradled. Someone here needs to be reminded of that today. In my final section, I want to think about Jesus' words to us today in John 15, verses 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. 
If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. I just want you to think for a moment what remaining in Christ's love might look like to you and how remaining in his love might lead to your flourishing, thriving and fruitfulness. In Chasing Vines, Beth Moore writes that abiding inevitably leads to love. A life that is lived in intimacy with Jesus is a life that is lived in love. I think that that's so true. Gary Burge believes that the fruit Jesus expects from the branches is first and foremost love. In light of that comment, I want to reiterate my point from earlier that I don't think that remaining ever means staying still. I think that there can sometimes be a tendency for us to hear the word remain and think that we are being given permission to stay exactly where we are in our comfort zones, in our familiar places, where we are confident that we know what the outcomes will be, where we have permission to be passive consumers. I don't think that Jesus ever showed signs of wanting us to play lip service to love. He never wanted us to leave our talents or our possibilities in a little hole next to our comfortable armchairs. I don't think that Jesus could have been any clearer when he said in verse 10, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. You and I well know that loving people as Jesus commanded us to do is not a passive thing. Loving involves action. Loving involves carrying a flaming torch into someone's darkest of tunnels to reach them where they are. Loving involves crocheting a hug and putting it into an envelope. Loving involves scaling people's carefully constructed walls to reach them with our vine's refreshing fruit. Love often costs us. In the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, Jesus teaches not to pick and choose, select, opt for who we're going to show love to. He teaches the people of those times to extend love to those who are hard to love, to those who aren't natural choices, to those who don't at first glance appear to deserve it. And then at the end of the parable, he says this, go and do likewise. He says the same to us today. To me, this generous blessing of others is brilliantly exemplified in how Boaz acts in Ruth chapter 2, when he instructs his men to pull out good stalks from the already gathered sheaves and leave them for Ruth to pick up. How often do we leave our scrag ends, our detritus, our dregs on our edges for others to clumsily gather? The things that we can afford to leave available, the things that we won't miss. How often are we prepared to go to our already gathered bunches of grapes and pull out the best specimens for others to enjoy rather than ourselves? In Fruitfulness on the Frontline, Mark Green writes, fruit is anything done with authentic love.
and he goes on to ask the questions. Has anyone ever done anything for you that they didn't have to do? What impact did that have on you? I'm sure that you're thinking of things right now in that category, and hopefully you're remembering how those often unexpected, surprising acts of kindness and love springboarded you on into further good things. Or maybe, like my friend, was actually the thing that brought you out of your tunnel. Mark Green also writes in his book, we are commanded to create ways of doing things that help people flourish. Love does that. Love is so often creative. Love so often thinks outside the box. In Untangled, Jen Baker writes, I want to live like Jesus, who was drawn by compassion and poured out by love. People wait for us to draw near, challenging us to look beyond their palpable banners of hurt and hopelessness into the treasure which lives inside. That's what love does. Love finds hidden treasure in people that they didn't even know was there. Don't we all want that? For people to find some treasure hidden in us. In closing, I want to recognise those people here for whom talk of loving others is very raw and painful, brutal even. People for whom loving others hasn't brought the outcomes that they expected. Your scars may still bleed at times. Maybe you even find it hard to get your head around the fact that you are loved beyond measure by Jesus. And that knowledge might be finding it difficult to permeate into your heart for all sorts of reasons. I share with you the sage recommendation of Henri Nguyen when he writes in the inner voice of love, keep saying, God loves me and God's love is enough. You have to choose a solid place over and over again and return to it after failure. Trust that love will have conquered enough of you that even the most fearful part will allow love to cast out fear. And if there is anyone here who feels as if they're burnt out at the moment, as if they haven't got anything left to give, as if they couldn't even put one foot in front of the other where love is concerned, I have felt a nudge from God to remind you of verse six of Psalm 23 in the message. Your beauty and your love chase after me every day of my life. Look, God's love for you is there at your shoulder. It's pursuing you. It's not letting you out of its sight. You're not having to do any of the running. And it hangs nailed to the cross that stands on a hill overlooking your vineyard for all time. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that more and more we will understand what it means to remain in your words and in your love. May they fill us with courage and put a lamp in our hand that we may bravely venture into people's tunnels and dark spaces with an illumination that can never be extinguished. May our roots search out that stream that never fails 
and may the branches of our vines scale walls and reach people with our refreshing, invigorating, authentic fruit. And thank you for those people who you have planted in our lives who do that for us. Amen. <laughs>